0: Welcome to Tekka Masala Indica's spicy technology news podcast and um, we are back after a long time because we are having a lot of uh, scheduling problems with our host. But having said that, we have a, a special guest who with whom Abhishek had a talk and this is a person from Economist. He just wrote a cover story about Google. And why we shouldn't be afraid about all the things that Google is expanding into. Let's directly get into the conversation that Abhishek had with Andreas Kluth. uh, A very nicely written article. So, I couldn't couldn't make it for the interview because of uh, some prior engagement, but um, Abhishek handled it well. So, here it is. Today I have with me Andreas Kluth to talk about the cover story that he has authored for The Economist, Titled Who's Afraid of Google on September 1st, 2007. Nice to have you back, Andreas.
1: Oh, hello, Abhishek. Good to be back.
0: I have a little cold, so I might sound a bit incoherent, so you'll have to bear with me.
1: Well, we all sound incoherent for many reasons, including Skype and colds. And, uh...
0: <laughs> yep. And uh, how has the week, week been? It must be tough, you were saying, till Thursday, till today.
1: Well, there's a lot going on. I've I've taken a little bit of time off next week. I'm trying to write my book proposal, so it, it's just the same normal chaos. Uh, <laughs> Snafu, as if you know that expression from the American military.
0: Ah, no. Can you help me explain that?
1: Fu is uh, an acronym It stands for Situation Normal All Fucked Up.
0: <laughs> well, alright, uh, my first question to you is, uh, there's so much written about Google since the time it was founded. How much pressure was there on you to write the cover story for The Economist and try to be different and yet interesting?
1: Not only has there been a lot written about it, I mean, I have probably spent the equivalent of a book in the word count and in stories that have, that have had Google in it in one way or another. Sometimes it's about the new media, sometimes about search, sometimes about Yahoo, very often about Google. And so from time to time, I, I, at some point I just realized I was following it week by week, month by month. But it's one of those companies for which there's just an enormous appetite out there among readers. It's what Microsoft was 15 years ago, IBM 25 years ago, sometimes GE under Jack Welch. Sometimes there is just a company that is sexy for whatever reasons, is impenetrable and mysterious, and people want to know about it. And as you said, it was very hard because you have to please both the experts who already know Google. You can't leave them behind but you have to still make it simple enough and comprehensive enough for everybody else who will not follow this on a regular basis. And It it, it was very hard and I quite agonized over it. It was a lot of work too. And how long did you take to get this one out? It's hard to say because, you know, it's not like I just started the research. There was a lot of pre-existing knowledge, but I went into intense research mode for about two weeks. I assumed that Google would not talk to me at all for this article, because that's the way it has been for the past few years. Google's been very secretive and quite arrogant, I have to say. I mean, so that was my own impression. But something happened that I think there was a change of heart inside of Google. So to my own very great surprise, suddenly got a message from Larry, we have all these interviews lined up, we'd like to participate, we'd like to give you good access. And then I don't know, I had maybe a dozen interviews with various people from Eric Schmidt uh, on down. So it was about two, two and a half weeks of very intense research and then the writing. Ah. Uh,
0: Andreas, your article uh, starts by saying that rarely, if ever, has a company risen so fast in so many ways as Google, comma, the world's most powerful search engine. Now, my first reaction to that was, when do we stop calling Google a search engine, Andreas?
1: When do we stop calling it a search engine? Yes. I I think never. We will never stop calling it a search engine because whatever uh, new businesses it's going into, what they're really bringing to these old industries is search. So search remains at the core of everything they do. I I can give you some examples. When they started scanning books and libraries around the world, it looked like they were – expanding into something completely new. Books have been around, you know, certainly since Aristotle, and they've been, ar- and been around in large numbers since the printing press and the Renaissance, a- and now Google was trying to change that by digitizing them. However, the thing that they really ultimately bring to the world of books was the ability to search through them, and therefore to make uh, books that were obscure and therefore never read suddenly, you know, discoverable. To everyone, because eventually you can match advertising to the search terms. And they do that, as as with books, with everything else. I think the next big expansion will be into telecoms. They may have a a G phone, a Google mobile phone coming out, uh, software, not hardware. Uh, And they they will probably bid for radio spectrum in America, maybe in other countries in the future. So I think they will be a provider of Internet service and all of these things. But the thing that makes them able to do it, makes them want to do it, is always search at the end of the day. So there will always be a search engine that makes money from advertising.
0: Uh, You know, not very long ago, uh, I was sitting in a cyber cafe in Delhi. And uh, one of the guys who was surfing the net asked the other guy that I want to find a particular road in Delhi. The other guy told him, go search on Google. And this guy said, no, I couldn't find it on Google. So the other guy said, well, if it's not on Google, it doesn't exist. So
2: <laughs> I, I love that anecdote and that it's happening even in India because, I mean, what those guys are saying is, is absolutely true. Nowadays, if it's, it's not on Google search results, it, doesn't, it might as well not exist. And, in fact, one could even refine that because if it's not on the first page of search results, it might as well not exist. And in future, when everyone will be using Google through a mobile phone, that first results page will be... Smaller, So the power of Google to determine what we're aware of in our culture, in our society, is enormous. And I think eventually it will become a, a large political topic. Because anything it does, anytime it just tweaks the search algorithms, it has an enormous effect on lots of people, not just commercially, but culturally. Uh,
0: why is it then, Andreas, that everyone seems to be against Google? As in, at least the antitrust authorities or
2: Microsoft. No, I disagree with the premise that everyone's against it. And by the way, I want to make it clear that I'm not. In fact, I think it, it has improved the world so far, and that's what they set out to do very explicitly. What I did in my cover story in The Economist, and, and really the reason why, why I'm talking about it now with you, is really Google has grown from a small company to an uninterrupted series of successes. Most people have a much easier, better access to information than they've ever had before in world history, And that's in large part thanks to Google. And Google also, I have to say, so far genuinely tries to do the right thing whenever it can. So far the only people that hate Google are rivals or people in industries that are being disrupted, such as media companies like Viacom, such as telecoms companies like AT&T and Verizon. And it's not yet the users
0: what is your take on the contextual ads that come in the emails, which had raised quite a lot of uh, dust on Google some time back? Uh, you know, someone I know had written me an email, and it, it had a very depressing poem. The contextual ads for me was that of self-help books, so which was kind of amusing to me, but uh, many people don't like that. They presume that it is invasion of privacy to them.
2: It's a great example. For the creep factor, you know, for some people this will be an emotional, uh, a right brain issue. They will just get creeped out by Google doing this. However, I think what I think about those ads, I'm I'm also a Gmail user. I personally am not bothered by that at all because I understand that these ads are placed by computers, a- and that reassures me. Many people in the world will not understand that, or even if they understand that, they won't care. They will just feel offended. It- it's very easy to find situations where something truly offensive might come up if, if there's a sexual contest or a health contest or a context or something like that. Now, I would say that those Gmail ads are a great example for how Google has so far not been a threat, but Google will have much more difficult trade-offs in future than these, this issue of the ads in, in Gmail.
0: Uh, you say about, in, in your article, you have mentioned that uh, Google's goodness stems less from all that guff about corporate altruism than from Adam Smith's invisible hand. Can you tell us more about what you meant here?
2: Yeah, in Google when it went public on the stock market it had this kind of shockingly refreshing uh, motto, don't be evil, and that was from the start heaved ambivalently by other people because it implies that it is morally better, holier than other companies. And that cannot be true because most companies are inherently moral just by, by being in business, by giving society something useful. And essentially, that's what Adam Smith was saying during the Enlightenment in the 1700s, is that there is this harmony of interest and this invisible hand by which people working in their self-interest for their own profit supply something that other people can use. Google it supplies the service that has improved the world and it makes a profit from it. Where Google is different is in pretending that it does these things out of altruism. That is not true and shouldn't be true. And We will find out if they mean that only when they have a crisis, when something goes wrong, they're forced to choose between, as it were, altruism on one hand and profits on the other side. So far, they've never had to choose anything. The thing that has improved the world is the thing that's making them one of the richest companies in the new economy.
0: Uh, It reminds me of a line uh, from The Wealth of Nations uh, of Adam Smith Uh, when he said that it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, brewer, or baker that you earn your meal, but from their regard to their own good. So Google is doing everything in the wheel of corporate social responsibility, maybe, but then they're making money, and that's how it should be.
2: That's how it should be. And, you know, I I need to just remind you once again that I think that's great. The point of all that is to say that Google has so far been good, like like most other companies, uh, the only way it's unique is in claiming that it is somehow better.
0: Jeff Bezos of Amazon.com said, after reading Google's uh, tagline or slogan of Don't Be Evil, he said, well, why brag about it? Like you said, it should be the motto of every company. So why brag
2: about it? Exactly. <laughs> and no one's ever going to prevent them from doing good things. They may now stop bragging about it. The founders, I don't think, began as arrogant people, whether or not they've become arrogant now. I think they're genuinely young. They they're now being photographed. They're recharging their electric uh, cars, uh, doing things that are good for the environment, and installing photovoltaic cells on their roofs and so forth. Uh, have you met them in person? Did you have a chance to talk to them anytime? Yes, yes, I have. I've met them. At, you know things like their Christmas party at, at the TED conference in Monterey for brief moments of time. Uh, they're very sought after. They're hard to get interviews with. So I've not sort of sat down individually with Sir Gabriel or Larry Page. I have slightly more in depth a conversation with Eric Schmidt, the chief executive, and then uh, of course top management.
0: Okay, that's cool. I wanted to know whether the rivalry between Google and Yahoo uh, is Google getting back at Yahoo just to rub it in, since Yahoo had spurned an offer to buy out Google in 2002. I mean, for example, Yahoo wanted to buy AOL, uh, Time Warner's web portal. And in comes Google and it buys a stake uh, in it. Same is the case with YouTube Double Click, which eventually went to Google. So... Yes.
2: The answer is no, they're not trying to rub it in. In fact, they probably spend no time at all now thinking about Yahoo. Because they have left Yahoo so far behind in the areas that matter that by thinking about Yahoo, they, they would be limiting their own potential. Their thinking is often about Microsoft often about telecoms companies, like Verizon and AT&T, because uh, Google is uh, thinking a lot about net neutrality, the future of the Internet as a whole. That is a bigger threat to the expansion of Google than anything that Yahoo could do. But you need to realize that Yahoo is now so far behind Google that Google has, has stopped caring. But then you also mentioned that all of this growth
0: is inorganic. Uh, Double click YouTube, Salesforce.com, and all these companies have been acquired over time. Whereas uh, all the internal startups like Google News or iGoogle, they, they're still to make any money or make a big impact.
2: Well, a, it's not quite what I said that the growth has come by acquisition. That's not true. The profit and revenue growth, I should say, has indeed come organically because this formula that they uh, pioneered, they didn't invent it, uh, company called Overture that's part of Yahoo now invented it, but that they uh, sort of pioneered commercially is the source of their growth, which is the number of searches keeps going up and the number of context, you know, pay-per-click advertisements that they put next to search results also goes up. That's where the revenue and profit growth comes from. That is organic. That needs to be clear. However, the truly big innovations uh, such as uh, YouTube, such as DoubleClick, all the Google documents, the spreadsheet, the Word documents, the, uh, the the presentation software that you can do online, and many other examples, Wiki software, those are all things that they bought, Google Earth. I mean, we we could keep going. They they're rolling in money, so they have this luxury that whenever anything truly big comes along, buy it. And that is more the way Cisco has grown in the '90s. Cisco had a, a very profitable business model because they were the plumber for the growing internet. They they made the switches and routers. And whenever anything interesting was done by other companies, they bought those companies. And so Google looks more like Cisco in just being acquisitive than like some new phenomenon. In, in, in generating all this innovation internally. Uh, and you also compare uh, Google with the banking industry. Google is a company that wants to store all our information, more and more of it, and eventually all of it. You have to picture it this way. They have the large cloud or supercomputer in the world. It's computers that you'll never see. They're in faraway places in data centers around the world. And you access these through any Internet connection. And you increasingly will keep the information that you now have in your desktop computer or in your bookshelf or in your file cabinet, you will increasingly keep all of that information on Google's computers. That is similar to what happened historically during the Industrial Revolution, for instance, or during the Renaissance in Italy, when people stopped keeping, let's say, gold coins, their savings under their mattresses and started putting... Their money in a bank, a- and also uh, you know the same was true for insurance. So the bank we grew up as custodians of our money. Google is now sort of growing up at this stage of history as a new kind of bank, from where we live, where we are, you know, because they'll be able to know this from our, s- our mobile phones, uh, where we shop, uh, what we search for, our word documents, our spreadsheets, our emails, our contacts, our calendars, our photos, our videos you name it. So all the information they want to store. And I think we will keep storing more and more of our information for a long time because it's useful. It's actually safer on Google computers than in our houses because our (laughs) houses could be burned down and our computers could be stolen. So it is actually quite safe to store our information on Google. And that's the same as the true for the banking industry. Now the next step is if it resembles the banking industry in that way. What happened to the banking industry after it became a custodian of our information? It is now one of the most regulated industries in the world. Huh. There's a, a politicians take a very keen interest in banking and regulators. For Google at the moment, there is no regulator at all. And I'm I'm sure that this will, over time, over years and decades, change. When all our information is on Google, we will have a public interest to have watchdogs uh, making sure that it's treated well.
0: No, it's
2: like Google is
0: part of our DNA already, slowly and steadily, that we are allowing it to seep in because it's of
2: so much use for us. It's uh, funny that you chose the word DNA. Google will also know our DNA. <laughs> By the way, and that is true, you may not know that, but the uh, wife, the new wife of Google co-founder, Sergey Brin, she has a startup company it's called 23 because we have 23 prayers of chromosomes. It does exactly this. It wants to know about and help us analyze our own DNA. And Google recently, this was a bit of a scandal because of the relationship between Sergey and her, uh, recently invested in that company. So it, it's funny you bring up DNA, but, yes, there is no limit at the moment for the information that Google will in future know about us. Oh, yep. And that includes our DNA. <laughs> I read about this in a, a book called The Google Story, that Google is already recruiting neuroscientists. Well, the, they're hiring anyone who's smart. Sometimes they hire people even if they have no particular function for them, no job opening. They just want to hire the best people, Right. But I can tell you one reason why they are might be particularly interested in neuroscientists. Larry Page in particular very interested in artificial intelligence, which does not yet exist, but they have not ruled out that it could come about one day. And of course, as the entire web gets sort of linked through links, Those could uh, represent synapses between neurons, ultimately. Uh, Once Google supercomputers and software gets powerful enough, they would quite like to come very close, at least, to artificial intelligence, in effect, to know our thoughts, to be helpful to us. So when you research artificial intelligence as deeply as Google does, then you end up hiring a lot of brain people. That's what Google is
0: doing. Well, not very long ago, uh, there was some survey which put Google as the number one employer in the world, and all the newspapers were talking good things about the company, like there is free food, free massages, etc., and uh, there is a chief food officer, for example. But then, your article, there was a refreshing change. You said that what actually happens inside might not be what is being read by us in the newspapers.
2: I'd like to say a bit about that because uh, they have been working really hard to do all those perks, create that image uh, that they're the the best employer in the world because they see that as ultimately in the long run their biggest competitive advantage is that they they get first picked uh, among the best talent in the world, you know the most talented people at any university. They'll go to Google before they go to Microsoft, Yahoo, or anybody else. And so, in my opinion, most of the press has sort of sucked up to them quite shamelessly and sort of not examined that, but simply, you know, this is very photogenic. You can go to the Googleplex and you, you look at the free food and the volleyball courts and the massage rooms and all of that. And it, it's fun. I'm not going to dispute that. But I've talked to a lot of current and former Googlers. And since the article, I've gotten emails, anonymous emails, because they're very scared, these people, from Googlers, current and former. <laughs> and they all reinforce that, that to some extent, this is a myth, that the people there are human beings. It's still human nature. There is politics. There is pressure. They work enormous hours. And The kinds of people that love Google are, tend to be the young kids out of college, very bright. It's like a university campus. You never leave it. You just play. And so, yes, I, based on all the interviews that I've conducted, I have to beg to differ. I don't think it is a paradise to work for. I think it's a good place. I think you can have a great career there. There are people now almost every week also leaving Google for startups, for younger companies, for their own companies, and I think that's interesting, you know. In theory, every Googler can devote 20%, I think out of five work days would be one day, but everyone works six or seven days. So, but in theory, they can devote 20% of their time to some new project. One thing it means is there are thousands of new ideas being created, but Google cannot pursue these ideas. So most of the ideas that people generate in their 20% time, they get shelved. Google. Employees have emailed me once again anonymously because they're all very afraid. I, by the way, I think that's interesting that they're also afraid. <laughs> they they email me from hotmail addresses. I don't know what to think about that. In, in other words, twenty percent time is one of those things that came out of their initial idealism, but as the company grows, it's not clear if this if this is sort of their saving grace. Uh, you
0: you also said that when you met the two founders. Uh, They are more like idealists. Is it a norm in the Silicon Valley that people who go out with the intention, at least on paper, to change the world are the ones who get funded? Because when these two guys went to an angel investor, they didn't have a revenue model. They had a brilliant idea, and yet they got the first $100,000
2: paycheck. Silicon Valley is a funny thing. Everyone seems to be proclaiming a revolution. Whenever... Anybody invents anything at all at our house, they go to venture capitalists and the press, and they say this is going to cause a revolution. Now, in, in the case of Google, they got funding from uh, Andy Bechtel, the founder of Sun Microsystems, and then from Sequoia, the venture capitalists, and so forth, because the expectation was that eventually there would be a lot of money. So, uh, don't confuse what people say in Silicon Valley, which is that they change the world, with what the venture capitalists put their money into, which is ultimately still just about money.
0: And, uh, well, that was great, Andrea. Uh, How is the book about the Carthaginian journal coming along that uh, you are
2: on? Well, last time we talked, I I talked about uh, wanting to do it, and the only thing that's changed is that I've now taken a a, a quick holiday this week, next week, and I'm actually working on the book proposal. That's the next step in, in the process is that I have to write up a proposal, and then I have to give it to my agent, and then he has to sell it. So, And that will take a long time. So... With luck, knock on wood, in the next uh, half a the year, there'll be a book deal, and then I'll actually write the book, and then maybe in a year from now, or a year and a half from, from now, the, the actual book will be out. The idea is that I'm going to trace the unusually suspenseful and interesting life of, of the uh, Carthaginian general Hannibal, who lived in about 200 B.C., who marched an a- army of elephants over the Alps and invaded Italy, hoping to defeat rome and he kept beating the romans so going from success to success but somehow all those successes didn't end up to uh, a big success in his life but to the exact opposite ultimate failure and so i'm just using his story to write a philosophy of success and failure how some people who succeed in life still fail how other people who fail somehow counterintuitively succeed.
0: Well, I hope uh, you benefit from some of the examples that few of our listeners have given you in the comment
2: section. I love that. I, I particularly love historical examples and, you know, the, um, the mythological examples like uh, the Ramayana. It's a very fruitful hunting ground for me. I, <laughs> a lot of the Greek mythology and Greek history and Roman history and ancient and Indian philosophy. I will use the Bhagavad Gita. In, in my concluding chapter, uh, India is, uh, has, just has this rich philosophical tradition that has a lot of things to say about these issues, and I tend to, to tap into it. Right.
0: So why don't you take a sabbatical from your work, like Steve Jobs had done, and come to India and for about six months and be a yogi or something?
2: <laughs> be careful what you wish for. I might just do that. I have thought about it, and don't rule it out in the future. I can't do it right now. I also have some family duties. You know, I, uh, from time to time I think about that because I'm very drawn to, to India in many, in many ways. I may have told you my, my daughter's name is Patya. truth. Wow. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm German, my wife is Chinese American, but our, our daughter has an Indian name, Patya. So that tells you something about my interest. So you have an Indian connection already? You're my daughter. Every day I say an Indian word many, many times a day. <laughs> That's great, Andreas. I wish you all the best
0: for your book, and uh, I hope it's a great success.
2: Thank you, Abhishek, and I wish you all the best, because from what I gather, um, you know, you've got a lot of interesting speakers, including people from The Economist, and it sounds like your podcast is doing great, and uh, deservedly so. So, uh, I need success to you.
0: Thank you. Thanks a lot. I need
2: that. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: Log on to www.theindicast.com and leave your comments there. Bye-bye.